Well, this morning, I want to talk about business ethics. Uh, that has to do with ethics for you if you live and work in the business world. But it also has implications for ethics having to do with buying and selling generally. What do we do when we go into the marketplace and buy and sell things? So I want to look with, I want to, I want to give you four principles that I think will solve many, many, many questions <clears throat> that come up with regard to ethics. But before I get to those four principles, we have some introductory material. And so um, let's see. The first thing I want to talk about is... Um, is from 1 Peter 1.17. And this is going to be some strong medicine early in the morning uh, because the verse is strong. It's speaking to believers and it's giving us a warning for our conduct. So let's look at it. If you call on him as father, if you call on him as father, that's talking about us as Christians. We pray our father in heaven. And, and, and Peter is saying, now you believers... If you call on him as father, if you pray to him as father, remember who he is. He is the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Hmm. The, um, uh, the Greek expression here, who judges impartially, uh, the verb for judges is a, a present participle. It means who is always judging, who is in an ongoing process of judging, who is regularly, continually, habitually judging. Judging what? Judging impartially. That means he doesn't show favoritism. Example, if you go to a school, or if a, if a child goes to school, and the child's father is the principal of the school, does the principal let uh, Johnny get away with whatever he wants to do? No, not, not if he's a good principal. He treats Johnny the same as every other student. In fact, maybe he has a little bit higher standard for Johnny. But he doesn't show favoritism. And uh, he doesn't show favoritism to his own children. And so Peter is saying, yes, God is your father. Yes, he loves you. Yes, you are a member of his family. Yes, you're his son or his daughter. But he continually judges impartially. That means he doesn't show favoritism even to his children. Continually judges what? According to each one's deeds. That's our conduct in life. And this gets us into this topic of ethics. It's telling us that God is continually watching. God is watching and evaluating and judging according to each one's deeds, according to what we do. That means when we enter into the area of business ethics, we're not talking about what you can get away with and not get caught. We're talking about a God who is our Father, but who is always watching and is always judging and evaluating what we do according to each one's deeds. So then Peter says, if this is the Father you call on, who's judging all the time, judging impartially according to each one's deeds, What's the response? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Ron, you just talked about us being exiles. And uh, that's a picture of us as foreigners living away from our heavenly homeland. I was actually, I, I was an involuntary exile in England 
two weeks ago because the volcano went off in Iceland and I was set to come home and uh, Margaret was going to meet me and uh, had to call and say, sorry, uh, every flight out of England has been canceled. And I was there uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and finally Wednesday, three days later, got home. Um, so I get a little bit of a sense of being in exile when I didn't want to and if the Lord used, uh, used the time and uh, was able to get a lot of work done, but I, I missed being home. <clears throat> Peter says our whole life on earth now is a time of being in exile here on earth, and we should conduct ourselves with fear. What does that mean? Now, the next verse says, knowing that you were redeemed, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So, it isn't fear of final judgment. It isn't fear of hell. I want to be very clear about that. For believers, we never should have a fear of eternal condemnation. That's all taken care of. He says, know that you were redeemed by the blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. It's not fear of hell, but I think that Peter is saying there is a healthy fear of God's fatherly discipline and God's displeasure or the loss of his favor that will come if we act in disobedience to him. So continually, every day, I live my life with, I think, a healthy fear of displeasing God. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. I don't want to come under God's fatherly discipline, Hebrews 12. I don't want to be rebuked or chastened by the Lord Jesus, Revelation 3.19. I live in fear of losing God's favor on my life, my marriage, my ministry, my family. And I live in fear of God's fatherly discipline. That's not a fear that's a a terror of final judgment. I have confidence that I'm justified freely by the blood of Christ. But it is a fear of God's discipline in my daily life. And I think that's what Peter is saying. If we call on him as father, if we pray to him as father, he's our father who loves us, but he judges impartially all the time, every day, according to our deeds, conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. I think American society has lost that sense of fear of God. Um, I'm I'm just going to read something I wrote for a, a business ethics conference coming up in Philadelphia in June. No one has ever heard this before, but it fits. The most influential worldview in American culture from the landing of the pilgrims in 1620 until at least the 1960s or 1970s was a worldview that included the basic components of biblical moral standards. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. And this worldview contained large elements of the biblical meta-narrative or the big story, the overarching picture that explains all of life, namely that human beings were created in the image of God. They were created by the God described in the Bible and we're accountable to him for all our actions in this life and that history will end in a final judgment and people will spend eternity in heaven and hell. These elements of a Christian worldview were prevalent in our society. You know, You know, beginning in early colonial times, children were taught the alphabet from something called the New England Primer. Here's how they learned the letter A. A is for Adam. 
In Adam's fall, we sinned all. B is for Bible. With this rhyme, thy life to mend, this book attend. Every child in the United States using the New England primer learned ABCs from that book. And then later, it was supplanted by some popular textbooks called the McGuffey Readers, published in 1836 to 1837. And there was a pervasive Christian worldview and Christian moral standards and fear of God and reverence for God throughout the McGuffey Readers and their stories. So even people who weren't explicitly Christian believers in the United States still inherited this awareness of a Christian worldview. And so... There were people like um, Benjamin Franklin, who wasn't a Christian, but who advocated Christian-like principles, hard work and diligence and frugality and a sense of duty to one's calling in life. So the pattern of life that was honored and rewarded in the society of the United States was one of productive work, honesty in work, generosity, fairness, personal responsibility for one's actions, and financial reward according to the value of one's work and personal integrity in business dealings. What was the result? I, I think, and I, I, um, Ryan might want to interact with me about this or Randy Alcorn, but uh, uh, later and might want to disagree or modify what I'm saying, I, I'd be willing to hear that, but I think that American society received many blessings from God due to this Christian worldview and what we call God's common grace. Grace that he gives not just to believers, but to all people in general. And I think that in God's providential oversight of nations and cultures, more common grace usually comes to nations and societies that seek to live according to biblical moral standards than to nations and societies that flagrantly abandon them. Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And in the book of Proverbs alone, there are many, many verses that speak of the positive consequences that come from good and wise dealings in business, but the negative consequences that follow evil and foolish actions, like a false balance that's an abomination to the Lord. This is not to say that eternal salvation or a present-day relationship with God can ever be earned by good works. No, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not because of works, so that no one may boast. But it is to say something else, apart from eternal salvation. It is to say that God sovereignly governs this world in such a way that as a general pattern or a general rule, Good or bad deeds receive fitting rewards and punishments even in this lifetime. As a general rule, I'll say that again, the way God has set up the world to work, good or bad deeds receive fitting rewards or punishments even in this lifetime. Now, the world has a way of saying that, in a little saying, what goes around comes around. Or you get what you deserve, and things like that. It isn't Always true. And so there are surely exceptions. And the exceptions are more numerous when governments become oppressive and corrupt. You get a totalitarian state 
good deeds are often punished, not rewarded, and evil deeds are more often rewarded. But those exceptions cause us to long for a future divine settling of all accounts that will be truly just. But still, the overall pattern, in general, the overall pattern of reward for good deeds and punishment for evil deeds, even in this lifetime, that pattern is itself one means by which God is teaching the world that a greater final judgment is coming. Such a pattern of warnings found in the ordinary consequences of events in life is itself another example of God's common grace. So our society for years, for generations, for centuries, had the conviction that God is in heaven and he is watching our deeds. And we are accountable, whether in this life or the life to come. Paul repeats that when he speaks to employees or servants. He says, Colossians 3, 23 to 24, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, that's heavenly-minded, but perhaps also with an implication to earthly repayment. Then he says there are consequences to good and evil deeds. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And then he says to masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Why? Knowing that you yourselves have also a master in heaven. James, as I mentioned last night, James says to employers who fail to pay their employees that God is watching. Listen to this, James 5.4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Other verses talk about this God, this fact of God continually watching human activity. Proverbs 5.21. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jeremiah 32.19. The Lord is great in counsel, and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, of man. That is, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man. That's saying God is watching you, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. So that's that's those are the components of a Christian worldview that people lived with for generations, but we're losing it rapidly. We're losing any sense of accountability to God. And uh, as um, Romans 3 says, a society that abandons God more and more, ultimately, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's the background. The background is we are accountable to God, and he's watching our deeds. And we take thought for business ethics in the context of what is right and wrong is not what you can get away with. It's what is right before God and what is pleasing to him. And I think that's true for, true for Christians, and it's true for non-Christians. Now, having said that, let me propose four simple principles that I think will be helpful for moral conduct in business, in buying and selling, in employer-employee relationships, etc. Here they are, principle number one. Exodus 20.15, you shall not steal. It's in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number eight. The meaning is, don't take something that doesn't belong to you. Example. When I, one year in the summer when I was in college, 
I had a job working in a paper mill in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, sterling pulp and paper. And um, <clears throat> first or second day on the job, at lunch break, I, w- I was uh, sitting down beside another guy who was kind of showing me how to operate this one bit of machinery. And um, the paper mill made um, facial tissue clinics, and it made toilet paper and made paper towels. Well, this machine was making toilet paper. So this guy that had been in the factory a long time, he opened up his old-fashioned lunchbox, took out his thermos and had some coffee or soup and took out a sandwich and ate it. And uh, then his lunchbox, he still had a lot of room left in his lunchbox then because he'd eaten his sandwich or whatever. And he reached over to the pile of toilet paper there, put a pile of the company's, put a, a roll of the company's toilet paper in his lunchbox, closed the lunchbox up and he's ready to go home. And I looked at him and he said, I need to get something for my day's work. He was stealing from the company, and he did it like he was doing it every day. Now, what does the Bible say? You shall not steal. Now, he could say, well, this is a $10 million company. They won't miss a roll of toilet paper. doesn't matter. It doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. It doesn't matter whether they'll miss it or not. God is watching. He sees. He says, you shall not steal. You see what I'm saying? The Bible's emphasis on the fact that we shall not steal reinforces the idea that there's private property in the world and property should be respected. If I ever visited Bill Gates' house, never have, never expect to, but if I ever visited Bill Gates' house and I know he's worth $40 billion or more, if I saw a dollar bill lying on the floor or on a table, it wouldn't be right for me to pick it up and take it even though someone would say, oh, he'll never miss it. That's not the point. It's not mine. It's his dollar bill, and I have no right to take anything that belongs to another person. And so, in terms of business ethics, that means don't take the roll of toilet paper that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the company. It means don't build your company for a time time when you're not working for the company or for the client. Some of you have done hourly work where you bill a client. I think think we have to remember God is watching. And we have to be faithful before God in those hourly hourly billings. I I worked for three years editing this volume called ESV Study Bible, and I was being paid by the hour by Crossway Books. And I wanted to be very careful. I had to be careful that I was honestly clocking my time. And I bought a phone that actually told me that I'd talked for 17 minutes uh, when, when I hung up because if I was doing some consulting about a verse in the Bible and I was billing Crossway, I wanted to be honest with billing them, not billing for time that I wasn't working for them. And following their general rules, if you can round up then or round down, then you know, follow the guidelines that they're giving you and you may be working in a company like that but you have to be honest. Don't build company for a time that you're not working for them. Titus 2, 9 and 10 says that this is the way we bear witness as believers. Titus 2, 9 and 10, slaves or servants, employees, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Titus 2.10, not pilfering. That means not taking the company's goods that don't belong to you. 
not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You're adding beauty to your Christian profession by being honest. It also means don't put personal items on a business receipt. Went out to eat with someone once, and um, he was paying for it, and, um, but I, he could see, I say, he, say, he said, well, the accountant can bury this someplace. What? The accountant can bury this someplace. If it's not business-related, you shouldn't be putting it on your, on your business charge. So you shall not steal. Now, the Bible expands on not stealing and says in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not desire to steal. But I want to qualify you shall not steal by saying, I do not think it's wrong to try to sell something for a profit. I think that Christians can get an, an unrealistic, unspiritual view of uh, earning a profit if, if you make a quality product, you're doing house repairs, and um, you uh, make a profit in the time that you're putting into the house repairs that, you're, you're, that somebody's paying you for, I think that's fine. In fact, I think, it's, I think that Christians who are in the business world should try to earn a lot of money. I think you should want to earn a lot of money because you should do that by producing a good product that is valuable to other people and, and you gain a profit from that. So if, if, you, if you make a product that costs you $6 and you price it at $9, you're just saying... I'm just offering this to people for $9. And if they want to pay $9 for it, that's their decision. And I don't, I don't see any problem with that because, uh, I, as I explained last night, I think a profit is a measure of the value you've added to the product that you've produced. So seeking to sell something at a profit is not stealing, and it's not greed in itself, and it's not wrong. Um, Maybe we can talk in the question and answer time about what, what is a definition of greed. I think greed is wanting more than you deserve or more than what is fair or right, but not necessarily, uh, I don't think we should think of wanting to make a profit as always greed. So that's principle number one, don't steal. Be fair. Be fair with your employees and your customers and your employer. Okay, number two, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This means don't lie. Principle number two. I think that means in business, honestly representing your product, not speaking falsehood about it. You know, have you ever gone into a store and you ask the person, you say, I don't see on the box that it works with this kind of computer system, and then the sales clerk says, oh, yes, it will, it will, and you get it home and it doesn't? The clerk lied to you? Well, that's falsely representing a product. And um, um, I don't know if you'll ever buy a used car from me. (laughs) But if you do, whenever Margaret and I have sold cars in the past, sold a used car, I've felt an obligation to tell the buyer, here are some things that are wrong with the car that you might not see by just taking a test drive with it. I've felt an obligation to um, be honest about the, the, about the kind of car that it is so that if I see the person the next day 
And then he's found out that there's some problem with the brakes. At least I told him there's a problem with the brakes, and I haven't gotten it fixed. If you want to buy it at this price, and knowing that, then that's fine. But I've, I've felt that I had an obligation to honestly represent what I'm selling. And those of you who are in sales, I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about the quality of the products that you have, but it has to be honest. I went into, uh, Margaret and I, um, well, we had a dishwasher that was terminally ill. So we went into a dishwasher store, an appliance store, and we agreed to buy a dishwasher for a certain price. And then Margaret saw, oh, here's a coupon. You know, we can get a $50 rebate, and uh, the, the manufacturer is offering this rebate. I thought, great, we'll get this $50 rebate. And we looked at it, and here it was, um, it said expires, um, I don't know, September 15th. And um, <clears throat> it was September 20th. So we already missed it by five days, missed the rebate. And, and, so, and so I said, I was holding the coupon, I said, I said to the sales clerk, well, I, I'm, I guess this rebate isn't, isn't valid anymore. It expired September 15th. No problem, he said. I'll just put a date on the invoice that you bought it on September 14th. Oh, wait a minute, today's the 20th. So he's going to lie for me. And I said, no, I don't want you to do that. I'm not comfortable with you doing that. He said, well, 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 okay. And he was a little bit offended, but I just, I let it go. I said, no, I can't do that. I don't, because I, I wouldn't want to submit a false receipt and claim the $50 rebate on false pretenses because the Bible tells me not to lie. You know what happened later? We had to go back to the store, or I had to call back to the store and ask for the sales clerk. And, um, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, I was talking to another sales clerk here in the store, and he tells me you've written a lot of books. Okay, I'll bring by one to you. Okay. So, in other words, my own Christian testimony would have been compromised if I had gone along with that dishonesty. Another time, I had another time. With, we bought a TV, and the remote didn't work with it. Um, but for some reason, it, 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 I mean... I can't remember why, but we waited and waited and waited and didn't take it back. No, it wasn't a TV. It was a VCR, I guess. And we didn't take it back uh, because we could kind of do a workaround with it. And finally, I took it back to the store and said, can you uh, fix this or give us a new remote or something? And uh, the clerk said... Well, it's, uh, it's like a six-month warranty, and now it's seven months. And he said, and I said, well, uh, there's nothing we can do about it. He said, no problem. I'll just say that you brought it in a month ago. And I said, no, I, I don't want you to do that for me. And he got mad at me. He said, what do you do want to do? Do you want to spend another $70 for a new remote? I said, no, I don't want to spend $70 for a new remote, but I don't want you to lie for me more than I don't want to spend the $70 for a new remote. He said, well, okay, okay, here, call this number, and maybe they'll allow it anyway. And uh, so then I look, and at that time, my 11-year-old son, Oliver, was standing there, wide-eyed, but watching, that his dad wanted to tell the truth. So um, it seems to me, in business, being honest and truthful is a value that we should have as a, as a, as a Christian principle. When we were in Albania speaking about economic development, it was reported to us that people are so dishonest in the general business climate in Albania that if you go in and ask for a receipt for something you've bought 
the, the clerk will automatically say, how much do you want me to write the receipt for? In other words, it didn't have to bear any relationship to what you just spent, which is just dishonesty endemic in a system, and it's horribly destructive to an economy. Another implication of truthfulness in business ethics is keeping your word when you agree to something. Um, and people who have a reputation for being honest and honorable in business have a reputation for saying something and then keeping their word. Another implication is not calling in sick when you aren't sick. You know the cartoon about the boss coming by the house saying, oh, I, you know, I just needed to pick up John's key because he called in sick and John's headed out the door with his fishing equipment or something like that. But that's, uh, it's humorous, but it's not right. It's not being honest or truthful. Another implication of truthfulness in business ethics is not saying, oh, I don't remember that, when you do remember that you had made that agreement. Another implication of being truthful is not saying, well, I didn't understand you to mean that, when you did understand that, and you know good and well you understood that, but it's just a verbal conversation, and people were depending on you to be truthful. I'm going to read some verses from the Bible that emphasize this, because it seems to me that in God's sight, truthfulness in speech is so important. It's not just this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Job, in protesting his innocence, Job 27.4, My lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Psalm 5, verse 6, You destroy those who speak lies. In Psalm 12, a complaint, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Psalm 58, about unbelievers, they go astray from the birth, from birth, speaking lies. Psalm 58, 3. Psalm 63, 11. The mouths of liars will be stopped. Psalm 101, 7. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Psalm 116, 11. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. He's alarmed at this. Psalm 119, 163, I hate and abhor, and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Psalm 120, verse 2, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Proverbs 13, 5, the righteous hates falsehood. Proverbs 30, verse 8, remove from me, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Proverbs 12, 22, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Jeremiah 9.5, complaint about the people of Israel. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. Micah 6.12, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Do you get the point? I mean, it's over and over. I could read more. Colossians 3.9-10, do not lie to one another. Ephesians 4.25, having put away falsehood, let everyone speak the truth with his neighbor. Revelation 14.5, in the heavenly city, in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. So the biblical standards 
about lying and telling the truth are repeated again and again. And ethical principle number two is don't lie. Number three, ethical principle number three for business ethics. Um, this, is, this is also from the Ten Commandments. This is the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14. And here I want to say, within the business world, be careful that workplace relationships between men and women who are not married to each other don't put you or others in compromising or tempting situations. Be careful that business relationships don't put you or others in compromising or tempting situations. Just three days ago, I went into Subway to get a sandwich. And immediately in front of me, there was a man obviously dressed, for, you know, he has a white shirt and a tie, dressed for business, and a wedding ring on. And someone who looked to me, anyway, to be a lot younger than he was and didn't have a wedding ring on. And they were just enjoying their conversation together a whole lot, and they were out for lunch together. And my mind just said, something's wrong here. There's some boundaries being transgressed. They're just enjoying that relationship more than is appropriate for someone who is married. But it happens so often. Managers and company owners, take thought for your policies in this regard so that you don't unwittingly, or perhaps even unintentionally, put some of your employees in situations that will put very difficult strains on their marriage relationships. And employers and managers, not just with respect to adultery, but take thought for how much strain you are putting on employees' marriages in the demands for overtime work or weekend work or whatever. There may be times when that's necessary, but be careful and be thoughtful about it. I'm going to give you a policy from a Christian company that I'm aware of. This comes from their employee handbook, and there are some travel guidelines. And then the company policy says this, mixed company. When traveling on company business or while doing company business locally, the company policy is that men and women who are not husband and wife or immediate family members may not have meals together, drive together, or travel on company business unless at least one additional person is present. It's company policy written right into the employee handbook. I was glad when I saw that. I think that's a wise policy. Now, I understand that some of you are in business situations where you don't have control over that situation, and you are responsible to travel to another city with uh, someone you're not married to, a member of the opposite sex. I would just counsel you in those situations, at least don't get airplane seats together. At least get hotel rooms that are separate from each other, and don't be near each other's hotel rooms. If you have to meet together, meet in the lobby so it's open and there's no um, appearance of wrongdoing. I don't think that's impossible. I don't think that's too hard. So there's principle number three. Number one, don't steal. Number two, don't lie. Number three, don't commit adultery. <laughs> These aren't rocket science. They're, 
they're just basic statements out of the Ten Commandments. But I think they apply to business ethics. Let's, you ready for one more? Can we do the fourth one? I hope this is not too heavy this morning. <clears throat> Let's try number four. From Jesus' teaching, the commandment that summarized the others. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, if you are working as a sales clerk in a store, let's say you're working in an electronics store and you're selling televisions and video recorders and computers maybe, and someone comes in and spends 20 or 30 minutes of your time and you're on commission, but if you could have sort of spiritual eyeglasses and see inside the person's heart, you know that that person has no intention at all of buying from you, but is going to go home and order it off the internet. How would you feel? Hmm? Used. Would you like it if someone spent your time where there's no genuine intention of buying? I don't think you would. I think you'd say, well, I'd rather spend my time when I'm on commission with someone that perhaps I can make a sale to. And so there's a fine line here. There's a, there's a judgment call, but it seems to me if I'm going to spend any... I mean, you can go in and ask about a price or just ask about a feature just quickly. That's, I don't think that's defrauding someone. And, and as long as there's a bona fide, genuine possibility that you'd buy there. But it seems to me inappropriate to shop and take a lot of a salesperson's time when there's absolutely no intent to buy or possibility that you'd buy there. I just, I, I think you're using the other person. And the principle here is you shall love your neighbor as yourself or the golden rule. Whatever you would that others would do to you, do so to them. That solves a lot of questions in terms of business ethics. At least it seems to me inappropriate to do that. Now, I don't mind going in and taking a person's time and saying, in the end, I'm not going to buy here because I don't like the quality of the product or the, or the price isn't what I was looking for or something, as long as there is a bona fide intention in my own heart that there's a, good ch- there's a possibility that I'll buy here if they can make the sale to me. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But it's a question of the intention of your heart. What about layoffs if you're a manager? or an owner. I don't think you're obligated to keep paying people when it will drive you out of business, and especially in a downturn in the economy, that is a question. It does them no good either if you're driven out of business. But when you have to lay people off, if you do so reluctantly and with a fair process and with an explanation that helps people at least try to understand what is going on, I think that is treating the other person as you would wish to be treated. And in bargaining back and forth for a business deal, whether it's buying or selling a car, buying or selling a house, or buying or selling a product, I mentioned this last night, but I'll mention it again. A fair deal is one that allows the other guy to make some money too. A fair deal is one that allows the other guy to make some money too. That is, in a good business transaction, both parties will benefit. And I think you should try to get the best price possible, but 
<laughs> but there should be some happiness that you have that the other person is also making a profit or making some money or being able to gain, uh, result, gain the, the, the benefit of his or her work. And is that making sense? Um, I, just, I just got done negotiating a business contract uh, for a book with a publisher that I've worked with before. And they are hard negotiators. Um, but I just ask, how about this changing this percentage or this percentage or whatever? I don't know, Randy, if you do that too. Um, and um, I keep asking. They say yes to some things, no to some things. In the end, I'm happy. They're happy. <laughs> we talked about that last night. I don't mind that they're making some money off the, off the product and that I'm getting some benefit off the product, too. That seems to me a good business deal. In this regard, here's a question that was asked to me when I talked about business ethics at another church. Someone wrote this, handed in. I'm in sales. I have a customer who prefers me to others and has provided me copies of competitors' contracts so I can beat the price. Do I receive this gratefully? Is this pleasing to God? It seems that this principle comes in here. And and the companion teaching, whatever you would that others would do to you, do so to them. How would you feel if you were the competitor and secretly the uh, company was showing your contract to another bidder? What would you feel? You'd feel it's unfair, wouldn't you? that the process is you're being defrauded. And I, I think that this person should say, I'm sorry, I don't think it's right for me to see that. I don't feel right about it, and I don't think it's really honest for me to know that other person's contract. Um, at least that would be my response. So those are some examples. I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure this doesn't solve all the problems of business ethics. Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, and love your neighbor as yourself. But those principles, I think, can be used to apply to many Christian ethic, or business ethics questions. And perhaps in the question and answer time, you want to raise some specific ethics questions and see if uh, we can reason together about them. Finally, number five, this is not a principle for ethics, but it's kind of a conclusion. And it's basically saying... Trust God to bless you when you live in obedience to his commands. Look at this, what Paul says in Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You see, that's saying that God is watching again. And he's ordering the events of the world in such a way that in general, your righteous conduct, your good deeds will be rewarded. And in general, wrongdoing will be punished. Sometimes it's not till final judgment, but oftentimes it's in this life. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul is saying in general in the Christian life, do what is right, do good. And in due season, in God's time, when he deems it appropriate, he will reward you. You, We will reap, reap a harvest related to what we have sown, what we have planted, the deeds that we have done. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, 
and especially those who are of the household of faith. This is saying, trust God to bless obedience to his commands. Well, now, Kyle. No, Ryan. <laughs> Why did I get, I don't know. Ryan, I have a dilemma. Um, I'm done early. Um, because that's all I had for now. But here's what I can do. I don't mind, if you don't mind, I can just stand here in the middle and I can do some questions right now on business ethics. Could we do that? I know we don't have a roving mic, it's not set up, but maybe I can repeat the question for the microphone. Would you like to do that? Probably I've raised questions that are harder to answer than the ones I mentioned. Any? They're coming. What's your name? Kareen? Carice? Oh, boy. Oh, what a great question. What's the ethic? And I'll try to repeat this for the tape. What's the ethical response when we see non-believers do unethical things? Right? That is, I mean, that just faces non-Christians. That just faces Christians working in a non-Christian workplace every day, doesn't it? So, number one rule, silently pray for God's guidance to help you know what to do. Because there are a thousand different responses on a scale of nothing to actually confronting the person. And in between is just silence. Or oh, I, You know, I worked for a road construction company one summer in college, building Interstate 94 outside south of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, near Black River Falls. And the conversation, there were a lot of off-color jokes. Just a road construction crew, that's the way it is. And how, how do you respond to that? Not telling them. <laughs> and sometimes you involuntarily laugh because it's a funny joke. But you don't want to. And I, and I've, and I found myself just kind of a little bit restrained in the response and not trying, because I didn't want to give approval. And so the question is, can you act in a way that is still, you still like the person as a friend, but you're not giving approval of the joke or of the stealing? And Carice, um, let me just give some examples. One is just not saying anything. Another is just going like this. Did you see my eyebrow go up? I mean, that's just... I mean, that's, it's silent. It's just like, hmm. And it's, it's not like judging the person with condemnation and a stream of, you shall not steal. Don't you know the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal and all that? It's not saying that. Uh, but it's just, it just, you know, and, and you're conveying a lack of approval by that. Another is, um, another is saying, hmm. I mean, that's a little bit stronger. Another is saying, um, uh, when, when you and Jane are alone, saying, Jane, you know, when you took, that, took those three notepads and pencils home, it seems to me you're stealing from the company. Um, but just kind of saying it in a kind of a personal, quiet, private way. Another is 
filing a report. I mean, it's getting more and more serious. What I'm saying is there's a thousand things in between doing nothing and doing a very direct confrontation. And I don't know the answer to that in advance. It's something that I think should probably keep you close to the Lord in prayer, asking for guidance. Lord, how do I respond in this one? How do I respond in this situation? And, and uh, ask for the Lord to give you wisdom. Does that, does that help at all? Um, there are some very serious things where, you know, there's, there's actual fraud going on or a violation of the law, and then you have stronger obligations, and perhaps even company policy tells you you have obligations, and so you need to be familiar and follow those. But does that help at all? Pray for God's guidance. What else? Question. Yeah. What is a response that... What's your name? Kent. Kent? Ken? Kent? Ken? Ken. Okay, Ken's question is, how do you respond to, uh, he's saying that he has uh, two sons, one's a plumber and one's a welder. welder. They're highly skilled, they've got years of training, but they're having a hard time finding work because people who are a lot less skilled are being hired for those jobs. Um, you can't force somebody to hire you know, against their will. Um, it seems to me, Ken, that the, the challenge is how to make their skills known in a way that they're marketable so that they're getting paid what they're worth. And um, I guess there are two options. One is um, continuing to apply to employees, to employers and say, we're offering you higher quality work than you can get from untrained people and hope they get a job from... Because they, just hope that there are some, em, some employers who will pay for the high quality work that they're providing. But the other is to try to go into business for themselves and sell their work based on the higher quality that they provide and advertise it as, you know, such and such a training, such and such certified... Uh, plumbing or welding. Um, I I don't know any other. Uh, How do you encourage Christians who are out of work without them becoming resentful or bitter? Well, yeah. By, being replaced by... It just seems so unfair. Yeah, there's an unfairness. How God, you know, was going to have yep. such like that. We have a government that prints money. 
got about gold and silver that yep. God owes all gold and silver. Okay. Our money's not that much okay. gold and silver. It's such like that. Okay. I understand, Ken, and I'm, I'm going to tell you honestly, when I don't know the answer to the question, I'm going to have to say I don't know, and I don't know more right now other than the general Christian teachings about trusting in God and seeking work and seeking to be faithful and seeking that work. Um, but I'm going to turn to Ryan because it's a question that pastors can answer often better than... <laughs> Do you have a microphone? Ron, can you... just asked me, uh, what do I say to people now who are looking for work? And um, I mean, the first is, we'll pray for you. I mean, that sounds like a, an empty um, thing to say, but it, it's it's true. We do want to pray for those who are, are looking for work, um, to trust God that he's in it. Um, that even if it's uh, a sinful reason why they've been let go, uh, even if uh, they've been they've been wronged, they can trust that God has purposes in it. Romans 8.28, what Randy was talking about yesterday, uh, applies to their layoff, to their wrongful firing, um, and it applies to their job search and the inequity um, uh, that they're finding in their job search. So I, I don't know that I can say anything more profound than that either. Um, it comes back to the same exact suffering principles um, that we all face, and, and sometimes it's job-related, and sometimes it's family-related, and sometimes it's health-related, and, and sometimes it's uh, financial uh, or, or other things. So the, 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 what the Bible says about suffering in general would apply, I think, to um, the, the toughness of your job search. That's a great answer. Thanks, Ryan, very much. Did I lose my microphone now? Is it on? Okay. What else? Way over here. What's your name? Uh, Chris. Chris? In regards to a company or a business that has a product that has a sense of intellectual property, yep. um, where they own the only right to make that product, yep. um, and it's captured monopoly on the system, yep. uh, what comes to mind, and I know there are many other products that do this, but the first thing is a pharmaceutical. A drug that can you know, do something for someone, but they spend so much money producing it, Yep. But now it only costs one cent to make it. Yep. selling it for, you know, $100. Thir- yep, yep. In regard to love thy neighbor and not steal, yep. what would be your advice to a company like that? Um, I think they should charge what they can while the patent or copyright protection allows them to do this. And what's your name again? Chris. Chris. Um, what I have read now is that almost all the new drug inventions or developments in the world come from the United States and Switzerland because almost every other nation of the world has so watered down the patent protections on new drugs that the companies don't have the money to innovate anymore. And so we're inventing all the new drugs because we're still protecting the right of a company for, I don't know, 17 years or something to sell that drug by itself. And I... I um, 
I just paid a rather high price at Walgreens for some blood pressure medicine that my doctor wanted me to try. So I understand a little bit of that. But I also have read enough about sort of world economic history to realize that nations that protect copyrights and patents retain their really highly creative and inventive people. And so uh, even though if it costs them $25 million to develop the drug and now it costs them five cents to produce the pill and they're charging $50 for it, I say, nobody's forcing me to buy that. So I think let them charge the $50 and don't complain about it because it's part of the overall scheme and the legal system of the United States put in place by our elected representatives, says we think it's wise to allow that to happen. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you an example as far as copyrights are concerned. A number of you have read this book that I wrote called Systematic Theology. When I was a young professor, I had a choice in the summers. I could teach extra classes in summer school, and it was instant cash. And when you've got young kids at home, Margaret appreciated that we got instant cash from teaching summer school classes. But I had another choice. I could decide not to teach summer school classes and sit down in my basement and try to write a book. I did that in a nation that protects copyrights so that there is a possibility that I would have royalty income later that comes from those books. And Randy knows this and I know this. I've written books that just fizzled, did nothing. I got $8.97 out of royalties from it or something like that one year. I mean, and, and then I've written other books that have done well and you've gotten royalties. So there's a risk involved with it. But at least there was a chance that I would get payment income to buy tennis shoes for the kids when their feet were growing or something like that from writing a book. And so if I lived in a country where there's no copyright protection... And I said to Margaret, as a young professor, I'm going to sit down in the basement and write this book. And she said, well, what will you earn from it? And I say, nothing, because whoever gets it is just going to copy it. She'd say, Wayne, why don't you get a real job? <laughs> but because I lived in a nation where there's copyright protection, I was able to take that time and that risk, but there was royalty coming from it. And so Margaret wasn't saying, Wayne, go get a real job. She said, hurry, finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> and... And countries that protect copyrights and patents retain creative, inventive people, whether it's in pharmaceuticals or in other kinds of technological invention or in literature or in music. And when they don't, they don't. So um, anyway, I, I just want to say, hey, we all get the benefit from that. Does that help? Yeah. Hmm. What's your name here? Yes. Okay, Hans, and then next to you. Okay, Hans, and then Rob. I don't think it's any part of the government to say you've made enough profit. That's not a role of the government. That's the market. If I don't want to buy this, extra, this other medicine, I go back to the older medicine. That's fine. So um, the market, the market is, a, is a fierce force to, uh, to rebuke people who don't put out a good product or put one out that costs too much. So, yeah.
Yeah. Well, uh, a kleptocracy is a government of thieves. And uh, how do you, uh, how do you uh, counsel people to act toward that? Um, I've been concerned I'm going to talk tonight about economic development in poor countries. And a common pattern in poor countries is rulers who think that they have the right to take everything from the people. Samuel warned that the people of Israel, when they got a king, the king would take your sons and your daughters to be his servants. He would take your olive uh, orchards. He will take your vineyards. He will take your fields. He will take, 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 take. And the king gets too much power, and that's the tendency of government, Samuel said, to take and take. And so um, one of the primary reasons that many, many countries in Africa are poor is that people in government simply take. And um, how do you encourage people to act toward that, try to change the government? So it doesn't take. Realize that property belongs to individuals, not to government, inherently. <laughs> That's a big answer to a little question. Yeah, we've got, we've got to wrap it up. Well, I'm a man subject to authority. <laughs> so I have to say, well, we've got people just urge, just, what do you want to do about those people just going like this up there? One more, he says one more. All right, two of you have to decide. <laughs> what I think about Christian companies that promote themselves as Christians and don't provide health insurance for their employees. <laughs> to the employer, I would say, Take thought for loving your neighbor as yourself and treating others as you would want to be treated. But to the employee, I would say, you can't change that. That's not in your, that's not in your power. What you can do is work for somebody else if you have opportunity. So it depends on who I'm counseling. And now I am out of time. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay.